Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
A teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to Special Education Advocacy with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow, and I'm so happy you're here. Happy June. We made it, friends. Whether you are finishing up the school year or you are already finished with the school year, I think we can all agree that this year was unlike any other year we've had. In so many ways, the year felt really, really normal. It felt so good for all of us or the majority of us to be going back to school. Um, for our family, we had been out of school for about 18 months. Um, Griffin had been in school, Jack had been out of school, and it felt really great to get back in the 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 routines of school and the social aspect of school and um you know kind of the whole um school community but that brought some really unique challenges things that we hadn't ever um contemplated because the majority of us hadn't been out of school for 18 months and and I think if you had been out of school for 18 months due to a medical thing or some decision-making thing or, you know, some other unique circumstance that was um, probably in my community tied to a disability-specific reason, then you had probably some other subset of emotion that was tied to that because it was probably kind of like a, here we go again, we can't access school again, kind of a feeling. I think I've shared with you before, I know I have, but in case you have missed some of um, the episodes where I've shared a little bit more about my own personal history, I have post-traumatic stress disorder. I broke four vertebrae in a gasoline explosion when I was 15. And um, I have chronic pain, chronic physical pain, and I do a lot for my chronic physical pain. I, um, you know, really eat um, non-inflammatory foods, and now I'm on a low histamine diet because I have an autoimmune condition. Um, I, um, you know, really try to stay active and I go to a physical therapist once a month and I do acupuncture and I do all of the things for my physical body. And a lot of those are also for my mental health. So I was, um, lucky enough that my PTSD stuck, um, when I was diagnosed and this is probably a major oversimplification that they gave to a teenager, but they said, you know, most people PTSD will really kind of um, resolve itself or, or subside significantly after about three years. And here I am almost 30 years later. I broke my back when I was 15 in the summer of 1993. Um, and here I am and I still have PTSD. And something that's true of both chronic pain and of PTSD is that we who live with these conditions are always kind of waiting for, what's that phrase, like for the other shoe to drop or the shoe to fall? I can't, I'm not good at colloquialisms. 
Um, and so the pandemic brought on this kind of new stress for me of like, I was always on guard, always waiting for one of us to get COVID and like preparing, uber preparing for somebody to get COVID. How would we quarantine? Being with Jack 24 hours um, is something that neither of us has, has done deliberately for a, um, you know, for a calculated reason that would be extremely exhausting on the person that had to do it because you kind of need a break from, as many of you know, from um, implementing the behavior plans and supporting him academically. And heck, even just dishing out his medicine in the morning gets mundane. Um, And so, you know, we, we, with, with my own profile as a um, as a human that was, um, you know, like afraid of getting COVID because my brain always kind of goes to the worst case scenario with, you know, my specific profile, physical and mental health. Um, and then also caring for a person that um, is particularly vulnerable. My brain was going a lot of times to the worst case scenario. And so this school year, while it was great to feel so normal and it was great to be so, um, uh, you know, committed to going back to something that felt like, you know, we were all calling it a new normal. Um, it brought some additional challenges or some things that we hadn't felt, we hadn't experienced, we hadn't done before, um, And so it brought for this really, really unique school year. And so what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about three trends that happened during this past school year, the 2021 to 2022 school year, because I started noticing trends, honestly, in the fall. And I was like oh my gosh, is this unique to the greater Cincinnati area? Is this unique to Kentucky where I do practice statewide? Holy cow, this is different. Um, And all three of these things are remarkably different um, than previous school years. And so I started reaching out to my friends in the special education community my students in the ABC course, my friends that are advocates across the country, my friends that are special education attorneys across the country and said, wow, are you experiencing this too? And the more conversations I had, the more people were like, yeah, this is what's happening. And then my listservs and my Facebook group started kind of exploding and everybody was kind of like, wow, how are you dealing with this? Or I have a unique situation. And and then, you know, there's 55 comments that say that's not a unique situation. That's what's happening in Illinois and California and Omaha. It's happening across the country. And so what I'm going to give you today is I'm going to give you three trends that I noticed in my own special education law practice um, where I work in Kentucky and Ohio as an attorney. But I'm also going to talk to you about trends that um, people have been talking about across um, all of my listservs and my groups and my own personal relationships, my own personal friendships. So 
The first one I think is pretty obvious. <laughs> the first trend is behavior, behavior, behavior. Holy cow. Did we ever have a lot of behavior cases? Now, I think this ties into the second thing, and I'm going to try to not tell you what the second thing is, but it might be impossible as I talk about behavior. I have notes, and they don't tie into the second thing, <laughs> but we'll see how it goes. You know how I like to get talking. So in this past school year, I saw a lot of behaviorally related fails, and I think I know why. Um, I think it is really multifaceted. Of course, we all, students included, felt weird. And when we feel weird, if we are um, prone to behaviors, um, then we're going to exhibit the behaviors. I mean, that is easy. You know, when you think about human nature, you think about how you behave um, and I like to talk about behavior, by the way, sometimes in IEP meetings, I talk about just human behavior. Like, you know, when you say behavior, everybody's like, oh, behavior, like they must have bad behavior. But what about your human behavior? What about just like the way you go about your day to day life? And what about the social influences on your behavior? So think right now, we, we are, as we oftentimes do, a little tangential here for a second. But think about the way that you behave when you are with your family. So my target audience here, not my target audience, but the people, that I, my stats, <laughs> um, you guys are about the same age as me. And so you probably haven't lived with your mom and dad and siblings or the people that raised you and the people that lived with you when you were growing up. And in my family, in my family, personally, my own personal experience, that's my mom and my dad and my brother. So think about the people that were in your house when you were, um, you know, 12 to 15 or in your houses or in your environments. Now think about <clears throat> when you're back together with them. It might be, you know, after a funeral, it might be a family holiday, it might be a birthday or Mother's Day or Father's Day, it might be, um, you know, some kind of family reunion situation. So when I am with my family, I am oftentimes um, annoyed <laughs> because I think my family wants for me to go back to a 12-year-old girl. And I have grown quite a bit from when I was 12 years old. My human behavior when I was with my family when I was 12 years old was I was, um, oh, somewhat histrionic. <laughs> I loved attention. I thought that I was just downright adorable. I almost felt like it was my duty to entertain my family. And so I had terrible jokes um, that involved puns. I still do have those, but I hope I deliver them more gracefully. And I basically kind of like tap danced in front of them. Um, my family has like really strong German work ethic and, and my parents have a um, summer cottage down, um, a, I don't know, like an hour away from our house. And it's uh, um, on the Ohio River. And they would work, 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 like to the point that my brother's friends would say, do we ever get to come down here and not work? 
and I would sit in a chair with this long stick that I called the power stick. And if my mom said, hey, can you guys go down and clean the boat? I would, you know, get my power stick out and say, clean the boat. And, and then I just sat in a chair or I tap danced or if they gave me a broom to sweep something and I would sing Debbie Gibson into the broom. Um, and now when I'm 44 years old, I still think that my family expects for me to be that, um, self-centered, <laughs> lazy, um, uh, attention demanding kind of person. And I'm not, um, largely <laughs> I'm not. And so that's human behavior, right? That's how we behave and we can evolve out of that. But what I want for you to understand about children is that they're immature. You know, when you look about, I, I love to geek out about um, child development and I'm not going to. But when you look at the different stages of child development and what stage of development your child is in, regardless of their age, what, what stage of development they're in, they might be extremely egotistical. And in all likelihood, they have, you know, kind of cycled through periods of being extremely egotistical and self-centered. And that's okay. That's important to their development. But regardless of what stage of development they're in, this is what I want for you to understand with behavior. Children are going to revert to that person that they are when they're under stress. So when I'm under stress, I might revert back to that 12-year-old that demands attention. I might revert back to using humor instead of um, it really diving in when I'm under stress, because that was my human behavior as a child. <clears throat> now I'll tell you what I do is I like really, really, really dig in now. And that's kind of like where I go now. I really dig in. I get 75 layers into the onion. I get really, really intense. My life has made me more intense. I'm like a research nut and I'm a human connection nut. And I am, um, you know, I, I, I just really want to get like deep into every single issue. And I know that drives my family crazy. And when I'm really stressed, even if Griffin is like pushing me on a teenage thing, like, you know, why can't I have this $75 phone case? I'll like get really intense about a $75 phone case. That's where I go now. And so what I want for you to understand with your children is if they have a, let's call that weakness, that's a one word for a, um, for what I just described in a five minute explanation. If they have that weakness or that vulnerability, that's where they're going to go back to when they are under stress. And that is human behavior and it is okay. And so we, the other people in the room, and as we're talking about students, we're talking about the adults. We, the, the rest of the IEP team, we have an obligation to support the child proactively and reactively when they revert back to their human behavior that is natural and innate to them. So I'm seeing a ton, a ton of behavior cases. And the first thing I want to tell you about behavior is this is why it's so important to have an IEP or a 504 plan. If you are still stuck in an eligibility discussion, then 
or if you listen to me because you have one child or a couple of children on IEPs and one or a couple that, you know, you're like, yeah, we got a touch of ADHD, but yeah, you know, nothing's happened so far. I think it is extremely important to at least have a 504 plan for those children. And the reason why, if for no other reason, is because if you have an IEP or a 504, it forces that manifestation determination review if a behavior happens and if you are looking at a change of placement, which can be defined as 10 days of suspension, 10 days out of the classroom in the aggregate over the course of the school year. So that manifestation determination review, what that does, and I've got um, some podcast on MDRs if you are unfamiliar with this concept. But basically what happens is if you've been suspended, if you've been out of school for 10 days and, and you know, we could dive deeper into that definition of, of what that means. But if you're out of school for that amount of time, then the school has to have something called a manifestation determination review. And what you do is you determine whether or not the behavior that caused the suspension or suspensions in the aggregate was a manifestation of the child's disability. And I am seeing a zillion of these with teenage boys who have ADHD. <laughs> well, guess what? Their executive functioning is all over the chart and they are very impulsive. And what happens with teenage boys, particularly in a community like America, <laughs> a very, very, very large community that's all under stress and is all experiencing the trauma of a pandemic. And I truly, I'm not a psychologist. I can't diagnose people with trauma-based things, but having experienced trauma myself, I will tell you that it is my lay opinion that we're all experiencing trauma. So what happens is there are a lot of um, uh, it, of impulses that can happen. There are a lot of temptations. More, I don't know this statistically, but what I'm seeing in my practice is that vaping and the use of um, pot, marijuana, THC, um, even CBD at school is either on the rise or it's becoming so mainstream that people don't care to hide it. Um, who knows if, if kids have always been hiding the use of marijuana-based products at school, but holy cow, have I had a lot of behavior cases that have involved the use of marijuana. And so we are noticing that people are having more um, temptations at school. And if I have a, a, that, you know, I've had a zillion of them this year, boys that are in middle school or early high school that have smoked pot and have ADHD and the school doesn't even know about the ADHD. I've had, a, I've had like, oh, I don't know, 10 of those this year. We have to start at eligibility in order to even force the MDR. So the parents call me. Um, and they call me, you know, 48 hours before the expulsion hearing. And, you know, in the first five minutes, I'm, I say, is your child on an IEP or a 504 plan? No. Is your child, um, does your child have any behavioral diagnoses? Well, yes, ADHD. Okay, well, what we've got to do is we've got to tell the school about the ADHD. And nine times out of ten, the parents haven't even told them. 
So if we have a 504 plan, then that MDR gets forced immediately because it has to be, because that's what IDEA says. So these cases kind of highlight the importance of eligibility for a 504 or for an IEP um, for the for these kind of disciplinary things. Now that kind of leads to what do we do about this? And I really, 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 really think that the one thing that we can do is add empathy. My podcast about infusing empathy into the IEP um, has, continues to perform very well. And so I think I've really gotten that message out to you all. But if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to that episode to really kind of find out how I recommend that you infuse your advocacy for your child with empathy at all times. We really need for the school staff, the other people on the IEP team to understand why your child is behaving that way. Why are they behaving that way? So Jack, my son, um, started stealing stuff. He like cannot leave a place without something in his pockets. And we started saying no, because that was getting annoying. You know, like even just leaving his cousin's house, he has to take a Nerf gun. And then I've got to write their name on the Nerf gun. I've got to remember that's their Nerf gun. And I've got to get it back to him at some point because, you know, my nephews want their Nerf guns back particularly for Nerf Wars. <laughs> One is a senior and his school just did Nerf Wars, which was, um, I was impressed by how safely they did it and how much fun he had doing it. Um, and uh, so that's annoying, right? And if you just look at it on the surface, it's annoying. But as I like met with behaviorists and psychologists and OT, all of whom were consulting for Jack's behavior regression that um, seems very closely connected to this pseudo post pandemic world that we're living in. What I realized is Jack is satiated by stuff. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, Jack would take out all of my um, kitchen towels and he would line them up absolutely perfectly, like as square as square could be across the TV room floor. And then he would come in and he would get all of my serving utensils and he would put one serving utensil directly in the middle of each kitchen towel. And they said to me, Ashley, that's easy. He couldn't control anything. His whole life changed. He was just at home living in the 10 rooms in your house and he needed to control something. And so he started controlling that. That's what happens kind of with that OCD-esque kind of behavior. And then what happened is over the course of those 18 months, it became this like kind of addiction, this satiation that would happen. He would become satisfied or, um, you know, calmed by just having stuff. And so Jack, anything that comes in multiples, he's like, he needs. So, um, you know, the box of popsicle sticks that was in our craft room is completely empty because he'll just grab handfuls of popsicle sticks. He loves thread and he'll take thread from my craft room and go like in and out of the spindles of the um, antique brass bed that's in there. And it takes forever to cut all the thread out. Tape. Um, he fills bags full of stuff you know, um, like rubber surgical gloves and it might be seven Nerf guns in there. Well, what happened was he started to need stuff for transitions 
And because that he doesn't transition well. And so he needed stuff. And then the stuff had to come from other people's houses. And then we said no, because that's getting annoying to us to take stuff from other people's houses and to ask and to explain Jack likes stuff on transition. And then he started stealing because we were saying no. And so we would get home and he had, you know, one time it was like the little Bluetooth chip that um, connects the keyboard and the computer to my nephew's computer. And then we put that in a baggie on the front porch for them to pick it up. And then they didn't pick it up and the dog took it. And now it's someplace in my mulch and I had to buy my nephew a new computer. Annoying. But if I can explain that to the school, then they understand why Jack also stole the exact same Bluetooth thing from the librarian's computer. They understand it. They want to help. And they also know we're annoyed too. Listen, we're annoyed, but punishing him is not going to help as much as supporting him proactively. And so we have a social story about stealing and we have all these things and we have all these positive things and this is what we're doing at home. And we are helping them understand because if you understand it, you become far less frustrated. So that's what I recommend to do with behavior. Now, we successfully talked about number one without talking about number two. And no, here comes a here comes just a bad joke that happens. I'm warning you. We are not talking about the potty. Okay, number two. We're not talking about the potty. Teachers are tired. <laughs> I don't know how to describe this trend any other way. Teachers are tired. They are physically and emotionally exhausted. They have had stress that they have never experienced before. I think I've said it on the podcast before, but as I'm talking to teachers out there in the internet, teachers in meetings, teachers that are friends, teachers across the universe, they're all saying, you know why we're tired? Because our industry is one of the only ones where the demand on us did not change. The demand increased. You know, in all of our jobs, we figured out a way to amend things um, so that we could survive the pandemic. So, you know, we got to work from home. We got to, um, you know, my husband works for a big corporation and he gets, in addition to his work time still this year, he gets five COVID related days and it might just be, you need a break. It might be because you got COVID, but you get five days related to COVID. You might need to take a vacation because of COVID and all of that is okay. Teachers didn't get any of that. We expected them to work more, to relearn their jobs, particularly when they went home to teach remotely, no matter how long that was. And we didn't give them more days off in most cases. We didn't give them, um, you know, a, um, a, a $400 to set up their home offices and set up their home classrooms. We just said, go home and figure out how to do this on the internet. It's going to be more work and you have the same hours and the same benefits and the same, 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 same. We didn't give them a break and we gave them more work. And in almost every other other industry, we gave ourselves breaks or, or, you know, kind of like acquiescences. I know that's not a noun. In order to survive the pandemic in order to survive the different workload and the different ways that our workload kind of came across. 
Teachers didn't get that. Administrators didn't get that. My principal one time told me how many times she had to rework the schedule, like the school schedule is the worst thing that anybody can possibly do, you know, figuring out who gets specials when and who gets common planning. Are we going to plan, um, you know, with the three, four, five team, or are we going to plan with all of the third grades together and, you know, who eats lunch when, and then holy cow, when's special education going to happen and blah, 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 blah. It's a lot. And so I think she had to do it in the previous school year to this, the, the, let's see, 20 to 21 school year, I think she had to rework the schedule like six times because we would go hybrid and then we would go remote and then we would go, you know, completely in person. And then we were everybody home with some small groups in and it just kept going. That is exhausting. And what happens when we get tired? What happens, you know, at nine o'clock at night, I have a rule in my house. I stop parenting at nine. I'm done. You need to study for exams. Good luck. You need to pack a lunch for your field trip. See you later. You need anything. I'm done at nine o'clock. I am done. What happens after nine o'clock at my house and what happens when you're tired? We are significantly less empathetic. Apply backwards to number one, behavior. So we just talked about how we need to infuse empathy into these things, but the teachers and the school staff, the people at the school are exhausted. I don't care. I don't care why your behavior is happening. I don't care that you are struggling with reading. I don't care. Just can you please just behave? Can you please just do what I say? Can you please just do it? They're exhausted. And so they aren't as empathetic. And what happens then? We don't crave that understanding, the why behind the behaviors, the why behind the fact that we aren't understanding, that we aren't like really grasping reading when the rest of the class is reading. They don't understand because they've kind of like lost the desire or they can't access that desire that used to fuel them. And therefore, we come to more quick conclusions when we feel like that, right? Like, oh, this kid's just bad. Oh, this kid just can't read. I just don't think they're capable of doing it. And we get into those kind of principle-based arguments. Why? Because I said so. Why? Because they just aren't going to do it. Like some people just can't read. Some people just can't fill in the blank. These kinds of things are what happen. And then people get on this like no train this principle-based argument train where they're like, why? Because it's just right. Why are you suspended? Because we can't have kids that are doing that. We can't have pot in this house. Well, what if the pot is self-medication for, um, you know, an ADHD-related symptom? Still not legal, still not allowed in the school, but does that change the result of a manifestation determination review? probably should. And so, but they get into these principle-based arguments. We can't have that at our school. That's not the way that things work here. And that can't happen in special education. We've got to look at everything on a case-by-case basis. What are the solutions to this? The solution to almost everything in special education advocacy is communication. Communicate, communicate, communicate. That's why this is so important to communicate with your team on a regular and recurring basis, even with the uncomfortable proactive things. 
So does my team know that Jack is stealing? You bet your bottom dollar. They know that he is stealing. A, I want them to watch out for it proactively so that the things with the, you know, librarian's computer don't happen. But when he took that thing from the librarian's computer, first of all, they knew exactly where to go. She said, hey, I can't find my thing. And, and they were like, oh, check Jack's pockets, you know, in a respectful way. And they did it very respectfully. But maybe they did it more respectfully because I had warned them. And so they knew. They weren't like, oh, that Jack, he's the bad one in the class. Let's go right after him right now. They're like, oh, we did find out that Jack, um, you know, has sticky fingers. And so we're going to go look in Jack's pockets. And we're going to ask Jack respectfully if he can look in his pockets. And then we're going to utilize that social story that his mother just gave us. And then we're going to contact mom and see how we can collaborate to further support him at school because now it's coming over to school. So we have to communicate. We also have to communicate like what we're doing. You know, when we started, we started going to OT and behavior and, and psychology and we are um, experimenting with Jack's medications because of anxiety. But a, a quick cousin to Jack's new anxiety diagnosis has been these changes in behavior. And so I'm communicating all of these changes that we're doing. Here's what we're doing in OT. We're doing a lot of interoception. I think a lot of this is feelings-based. We, um, you know, here's what the behaviorist has told me, which is largely nothing that we hadn't already been doing. But I'm telling him, and, I, and I'm also telling him, we've, we've been trying this. This is what I learned this week. And we've been trying this, and I haven't found anything, but maybe you guys haven't been trying it. And so let's see, you know, let's have a conversation about that. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Also evaluate. If you're noticing that teachers are really frustrated with a child, maybe you need to evaluate the child and see if there's some other source of the frustration. You know, do we have a specific learning disability? And so like every time we have to pull out our math books, the child gets frustrated and sad and, and irritated because math is just hard because math isn't clicking. So maybe we need to evaluate the child and see if something new has come up or if something existing is manifesting itself differently. You know, at some age, at some grade, at some point in the curriculum, it's hard to fake it if you have an SLD. It's hard to fake the reading comprehension. It's, far, it's hard to, to fake the FARD. That's a new word for hard to fake. It's hard to fake the, um, the, the phonological processing and, and the just simple lack of skill with decoding. And so maybe the teacher's getting frustrated because the kid is frustrated and the kid's acting differently because the student is not able to cope anymore. What's really important with this exhaustion of teachers is that we understand it and we treat it as a partnership. Your exhaustion is my exhaustion. We are on this team together and I want to support you even considering your exhaustion. I want to partner with you to help my child. And so what we have to do is we have to communicate. We have to work as a partner. We have to have respect. We have to have that empathy in our discussions. 
So the partnership and the respect and the empathy and the communication, they kind of all come together. And the other thing I'll tell you is I think those negotiation strategies become super duper important in these discussions because what I have found is I am getting, even with my training and my experience, I am getting to a lot of just plain no's. You know, I had um, a, a board office employee basically tell a student that they were going to go to jail you know what happens to kids like you, you go to jail, was essentially the statement. And like, you know, <laughs> holy cow, how do you come back from something like that? Um, and sometimes simple exasperation, like kind of calls people out, like, are you serious? Did we really just say that? Um, but I don't like to use exasperation because I think it's condescending. And I don't think, I think it's hard to come back from condescension. And so I try not to be condescending, but in that particular case, I was exasperated and likely condescending. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm finding a lot of these kind of like no's. And that's why it's so important to tap into negotiation strategies. Now, I do have that entire negotiation workshop that's available for my ABC students. Of course, the ABC is a, a course, Advocacy Business and Concepts in Special Education, that is intended to help people um, that want to become special education advocates or to grow as special education advocates. But I don't know that absolutely taking the negotiation workshop is what's necessary. I think that, you know, picking up on all the negotiation strategies that I talk about, the little tidbits of them, becomes important when you're in these discussions that's like, no, you know, how do we get to yes from no? So all those little tidbits I've talked about, that's what you need to tap into when you're having a discussion and you're like, this teacher's just burned out and tired. You know, we can still work with burned out and tired, but it's got to be a partnership. Okay. So the first trend that I'm seeing is a uptick in behavior cases. The second tick is this kind of like lack of empathy, um, principle-based thing that's happening because of school staff and teacher exhaustion. And the third thing is something that um, really kind of works to our benefit on behalf of the student. And that is, I am finding that it is way easier to get compensatory education. <laughs> I am finding that schools are dishing out money for comp ed um, a little bit more liberally. And so why? CARES Act money. Schools have surpluses and they are trying to figure out how to spend them. Um, and I think this is great. And I think that we need to, to really start pushing for, you know, school-based training, right? Like maybe we need to get more training for our districts on supporting our children in this pseudo post-pandemic world. Maybe we need more behavior strategies, mental health strategies, et cetera. But on the one-to-one -one, um, or one-on-one -on -one individual student basis, I am seeing that if I ask for compensatory education reasonably, you know, in a reasonable case, I'm not just asking for it for somebody because they like, you know, got an 85% and their goal was to get a 90% average or something like that that it's easier to get. And I definitely think it is that CARES Act thing. And I also think that children, um, you know, some children did not make progress the way that they had been making progress. 
because of all of the changes that are related to COVID, right? So children were learning at home, they were learning online, they were learning in, in different ways that weren't necessarily appropriate for them. And so we might be starting to ameliorate or try to correct that um, lack of progress. So here's the thing though, it's easier to get comp ed by and large, like very difficult blanket statement, but I, we'll just put it out there. It's easier to get comp ed, but I am finding that it's harder to spend it because small businesses that offered tutoring are either like completely overwhelmed because so many people need out of school tutoring or, or, you know, interventions of, of any sort, it might be OT or PT or O&M or, or whatever it is. Um, but, or the, owners of those small businesses that were doing this on the side or were doing it part-time or were doing it, you know, whatever, they were driven out of business during the pandemic. And so they don't exist. So they're either like really, really busy or they are out of business. And so it's harder to go out and spend your compensatory education money if you're going to spend it at a private provider because the private providers aren't as accessible to us. And so then I kind of think, you know, I always say you're only advocating for your child. We can talk about systemic change all we want, but when it gets down to the IEP level meeting, you cannot say I really want inclusion because I want it for my school district. That won't work and it'll put the weight of the world on your shoulders and it'll overwhelm you and it'll make it a billion times harder and almost inaccessible and you won't be able to breathe. Take it from me. So we're only advocating for our one child, but <laughs> we together have to spend that comp ed money because if we don't spend it in five years, they're going to be like, remember when we, were, when we were dishing out comp ed money like candy and then nobody was spending it. And so, you know, we told somebody they could have 10 grand for tutoring in the summer and we ended up with five of that 10 still in our budget <laughs> because they didn't spend it. So we have to spend it to kind of get the message across that like, yeah, we need that money. And so we have to continue to spend it. And so I think it's really important that before we even ask for comp ed, we are researching the options. We're looking for what's available and we are trying to get the, the comp ed, um, you know, kind of figured out preactive proactively and that way we can use the money and then we come back to communication again you know it's important to communicate like I thought I had um you know I thought we were going to start on June 1st but unfortunately all they're telling me is that the provider is sick um I hope that you know it's just a five-day quarantine and that we're back on day seven something like that like it's really important to communicate about these comp ed discussions because they can get tricky just like anything else can get tricky. So there you have it. The three kind of biggest trends that I am seeing in special education in the 2021-2022 school year. I hope that is helpful for you. I will see you next week. Same time, same place. Have a great week.